Our first reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, God who ju- it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Wisdom, Holy Word. And now please rise as I read the Gospel, Matthew chapter 13. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where they will be weeping. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, 
Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is God's word. So what is heaven? It's a question I've been studying and researching for a few months now. During this time, I made some notes thinking, what well, would be a good subject for a sermon? Annual conference this year was held at a convention center in the Tri-Cities. This venue provided excellent opportunity for conversations with other delegates, especially at meal times where we were seated at large round tables with eight to 10 people. We always introduced ourselves and asked each other how many conferences we've been to, mentioned how we thought this session was going, and other generalities. At one meal, a gentleman surprised us all by saying, I think annual conference must be a little like heaven. Although most people enjoy annual conference, it's not quite our idea of what heaven, so we asked him to elaborate. He said, Well, all our needs are taken care of with delicious food and comfortable resting places. We are among saints with whom we sing praises to God and have lively conversations, and we're doing the Lord's work. Can heaven be much better than that? When Brad asked me to speak today, I immediately thought of my notes on heaven. But when a member of the congregation asked me if I was going to give a report on annual conference, I thought this might be a perfect time to do that. In past years, I would write an article for the GPS and make myself available for any questions. I prayed and meditated on whether or not worship would be, whether or not annual conference would be a good subject for worship. When I remembered the man's comment and thought, maybe we can combine them, and maybe if we can figure out what heaven is, we can prove his point. The conference opened on Wednesday evening with separate sessions for clergy and laypersons. The lay speaker was Barbara Moreland from Seattle First. Her talk centered around discipling responsibilities for laypersons. I particularly liked her phrase of non-itinerant ministers. Since Methodist ministers are itinerant, that is, they seldom stay in one church for very long, It is up to the lay to be the non-itinerant ministers. That is what builds a strong and growing congregation. We are the church. The pastor at that time is merely a temporary guide. Our first plenary session opened Thursday morning with a wonderful mariachi band from the Methodist Latino community in Tri-Cities. When they played, Lord, you have come to the lakeside, I almost wept. It was so beautiful. They also played De Caloris, which is very familiar to those of us who have experienced Walk to Emmaus. Along with the band were ribbon dancers who were girls ages 7 to 18 from God's New Creation Church. They really set a wonderful stage to begin our session, which was blessed with an ancient chant by a member of the Yakima tribe, from the church at White Swan. The keynote speaker was Reverend Michael Slaughter from the Ginghamsburg Church in rural Ohio. 
His message centered on changing the world by recovering the message and mission of Jesus. This is done by becoming a church which is actively moving out and engaging the world in the places of greatest need rather than marketing the world into the church. That's the old model, which we know from declining numbers in church membership is not working. This is a paradigm shift from attraction evangelism to mission evangelism. Other talks of major importance throughout the conference were the bishop's address, the young people's service and address, and the address by our conference lay leader, Amory Peck from Garden Street Church in Bellingham, who, by the way, has been invited to be one of the lay speakers at General Conference next year. We're so excited about this recognition that she has received. I will now give you a brief synopsis of the business of the various committees. I don't know how discussion went with the other committees, but conference and church order, of which I am a member, went very smoothly and with minimal discussion and disagreement. The subsequent vote from all the committees in the plenary session also went very smoothly, especially considering that we have resolutions that will be carried from our conference to general conference next February. Four years ago, prior to general conference, there was much heated discussion, both in my committee and the plenary, before there was a final vote and agreement. This year, there was true listening and acceptance of others' ideas and comments. I've identified them as either petitions to the Pacific Northwest Conference or to the General Conference. From Church and Society Domestic to the Pacific Northwest Conference, that the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church become a signer of the Washington State Faith Leaders Declaration of Support for Marriage Equality as developed by the Religious Coalition for Equality. Number two, that the Pacific Northwest United Methodist congregations welcome newly arriving people in their communities, believing that through their presence we are receiving the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that all congregations study the biblical basis of hospitality to all. Number three, that the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference encourage clergy and laity to advocate for immediate comprehensive reform of the United States immigration system and that a copy of the resolution and letter of support for the just treatment of immigrants be sent by the Secretary of the Annual Conference to the President of the United States and members of the U.S. Congress from the states of Washington and Idaho. Number four, that each local church in the Pacific Northwest Conference develops an environmental policy in accordance with our love, respect, and stewardship of God's creation. From Church and Society International, these are general conference petitions. They adopted several pieces of legislation addressing issues of human sexuality in the 2008 Book of Discipline. These amendments to 13 segments would provide greater acceptance of sexual diversity and a broader range of ministries with sexual minorities. From Conference and Church Order, these are petitions to the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference. That the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference add the Conference Coordinator of Civic Youth, 
serving agencies and scouting ministries as a lay member of our annual conference. Number two, that at least two members of the Board of Congregational Development be between the ages of 18 and 35, and at least one additional member must have recent experience in ministry with young adults. Number three, that the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference shall include in every database of persons the capacity to sort by gender and by age category. Number four, that key leaders of the Reconciling and Confessing Caucuses work together to seek to identify and clarify the areas of agreement and disagreement and to develop processes that will lead to mutual respect, trust, and cooperation. From Global Ministries, these are uh, annual conference petitions. Number one, we affirmed the conference advanced specials. Number two, we affirmed our support of the Jamala two orphanages in the Congo. From Global Ministries, these are general conference petitions. Number one, that each annual conference will have a theme centered on disability awareness in the next quadrennium and establish a committee on disability minor, uh, disability ministries as well as a special disability awareness Sunday and a special Sunday offering. Number two, that the 2008 Book of Discipline be amended to change certain language regarding incapacity leave. From Poverty Finance, these are Pacific Northwest Annual Conference petitions. Number one, minimum compensation for clergy was set. Moving allowances, pension rates, retirements, and disabilities approved, and the budget was passed. Number two, Rathdom Community Church and Mabtum United Methodist Church were officially closed, and our relationship with Northwest Community Church was ended. That's the report from the committees. Other significant conference activities are the memorial service, which honors conference pastors or pastoral spouses who have passed away in the last year. The service honoring our retirees, the ordination and commissioning service, and finally the reading of the appointments for the following year. And we had a closing blessing by the Yakima tribal leader. That wraps up all I want to report about annual conference, and I'll be glad to answer questions if anyone wants further information. Now let's address the question of what heaven, or as Matthew says, the kingdom of heaven. As a side note, Matthew is the only gospel that refers to the kingdom of heaven. The others refer to the kingdom of God. The commonly held explanation is that the Matthew of Gospel was written primarily for pious Jews, and out of reverence, the word God is avoided whenever possible. However, when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, he means the kingdom of God. What we know is that the kingdom was the most central to Jesus' message. Modern scholarship does not believe that it is primarily about the afterlife. Marcus Borg says that whenever the afterlife is emphasized, Christianity suffers a serious distortion. He also says the cadence of the Lord's Prayer leads us to say, Thy kingdom come, pause, on earth as it is in heaven, when we should be saying, Thy kingdom come on earth, pause, as it is in heaven. 
John Dominic Crossan says, heaven's in great shape, great shape. Earth is where the problems are. That's why we pray for God's kingdom on earth. So let's look at the parables in our scripture reading today. Wesleyan theology states that the unusual and hyperbolic image of a mustard seed developing into a large tree is like the unusual and unexpected growth of God's community. I personally love the idea that the mustard tree is the kingdom of God with disciples as branches holding the birds, who in my mind are the poor, the dispossessed, and the needy of the world. A woman is viewed as an agent of the kingdom, which like yeast in bread, in bread makes a large impact in spite of small beginnings. To me, this is a major premise of Christianity, that a small dedicated group can bring about the kingdom of heaven. In the other parables, God's reign addresses seeking and securing the valuable possessions, which also entails a mixed community, good and bad fish, evil and righteous. I like to think that the kingdom of heaven will be realized when each person finds the treasure that is discipleship and embraces the whole mission, that good fish and bad fish are part of each of our natures, and the kingdom will be realized when we cast off our bad fish sides. Also, when we find the pearl, we will get rid of everything else in our lives and cling to the pearl which is the truth and mission that Jesus has commissioned us to. Marcus Borg says that the kingdom of God is very simply what life on earth would be like if God were king and the other guys weren't. What were the kingdoms of the world like in Jesus' time? They were domination systems in which ruling elites of power and wealth used their power to structure the political and economic systems in their own narrow self-interests. In other words, what would life, life be like if God were king and domination systems were not? Society would be structured around God's justice. Justice is not about charity. Charity is important and always will be. But justice and charity are not the same thing. God's justice includes economic justice, which is the just distribution of God's earth. In Christian history, we have lost the political edge that runs throughout the New Testament and the message of Jesus. We have domesticated it in part by emphasizing the afterlife, not about transforming the world. We have domesticated it by thinking the central dynamic of the Christian life being sin, guilt, and forgiveness. This focuses attention on individual wrongdoing and our need for repentance and forgiveness. That's important, but if we're going to talk about sin a lot, we need to start talking about systemic sin. The way sin of self-interest gets built into the structures of society and is used by elites of power and wealth in their own narrow self-interest. Now, I know that quoting Marcus Borg and promoting his theology seems to be a new idea, but in reality, during my research, I found another progressive thinker. Walter Rauschenbusch, born in 1861 and died in 1918, was a theologian and Baptist minister who was a central figure in the social gospel movement in the United States during the latter part of the 19th century 
and early 20th century. A central element of Rauschenbusch's theory was the concept of the kingdom of God. He explained that the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but by transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. Rauschenbusch applied the teachings of Jesus and the Hebrew prophets to the crying social issues of his day. He saw child labor and economic disparity as terrible social ills which he felt should be addressed by the church. Rauschenbusch wrote that whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. His message concerning the kingdom of God is particularly relevant to the church's challenges for the 21st century. The kinds of questions that Rauschenbusch confronted in his time were, to what extent should the church address economic need? What is the nature of the church's vocation in respect to systemic economic injustice? What is the theological basis for the church's mission to the poor and needy of our society? His conclusions and our own have a profound significance for contemporary Christianity. I've pondered these questions since reading about Rauschenbusch and his teachings and ministries. At times, I have thought that we haven't progressed much since Jesus' time. We are still in a domination system worldwide and even here in our own country. The wealthy and powerful still structure the economic systems in their own narrow self-interests. Our wars are not just. We, aid, we rush in to aid suppressed peoples when it's economically profitable for us to do so, while poor countries with no economic value to us suffer daily under despotic leaders and inhumane conditions. In the centuries since Jesus' time, we have advanced so much in the areas of discovery and technology, but socially, I don't think we've changed that much. Then I review the petitions that were generated at our annual conference. I'm proud of what we're submitting to general conference, whether they're accepted there or not. I know in my heart that the Pacific Northwest Conference of the United Methodist Church has got it right. And maybe annual conference is a little bit of heaven. <laughs>